0: Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Anna Ganey, the Executive Chair of uh, Canada 2020. It is my pleasure to welcome you all and thank you all very much for joining us today on uh, International Women's Day. This year's uh, theme is Choose to Challenge, which is a call to action for uh, all of us to uh, call out gender bias and equality uh, in our day-to-day lives where we see it. And this uh, challenge comes at a very important time. We've had a very uh, unusual year, a very difficult year for so many people with COVID. Uh, and the pandemic, the impact of it, the consequence of it, which we are still feeling day to day, have really disproportionately impacted women. And there's just a great deal of uh, study coming out that's uh, showing that. And I think people's lives and their stories are, are clearly reinforcing that experience as well. It's true not only in Canada, uh, but it seems around the world. So at Canada 2020, we have uh, long held a vision towards a more inclusive and equitable Canada. And that's one of the reasons uh, we launched the No Second Chances uh, project in, I think it was 2018 or 19 uh, with Dr. Kate Graham. And it was a really important time to look at uh, examining women's leadership in the most senior political roles. And we know that increasing women's representation and the diversity of uh, the women who represent us is a very important step uh, in uh, addressing the gap and uh, calling uh, out the challenges that uh, we see uh, in our day-to-day lives. No Second Chances was uh, a wonderful success. We're very proud of it. We've had over 75,000 listens to this podcast. And uh, it culminated in the first ever gathering of Canada's all-female ministers uh, in Ottawa in 2019. And since we still hear so frequently from the listeners and women who are just discovering the podcast, uh, who have questions and who are uh, thrilled to be uh, finding this uh, finding this podcast and, and working their way through it, we thought it was a great opportunity this Women's Day to um, ask... Uh, Uh, Dr. Kate Graham to come back and uh, join us and uh, pick up the conversation uh, that uh, she so skillfully led uh, just a couple of years ago. So it is my uh, pleasure today to uh, welcome Northwest Territories Premier Carolyn Cochrane, the only current uh, female First Minister in our country, which is uh, wild to think about, and former Ontario Premier uh, Kathleen Wynne. Uh, along with, as I mentioned, Dr. Kate Graham, Canada 2020's senior fellow, and the host of No Second Chances. We've had a nice chat in the room before all of you uh, tuned in and joined us, so I'm very excited to
1: listen That's to this good. conversation. Well, very much, uh, there's Anna, so much and to talk uh, about. Thank you, and, thank um, you So with that, for Kate, choosing uh, to I'll spend a part of you. your International so Women's Day with us this year. I will say we were, we were having a lively conversation before this started, and I was uh, naming that I've been struggling a little bit with whether or not to say Happy International Women's Day or let's celebrate International Women's Day this year just because it's been such a difficult year for women but uh, I think it's why conversations like this about moving towards gender equity are so important, especially this year. So thank you for being a part of it with us. Um, I am joining you today from London, Ontario, the territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Atawandaron, and Lene Lenape peoples. And we are thrilled today to be joined by people who are coming uh, and tuning in from all across Turtle Island. So here's how today is going to work. As Anna said, we are incredibly fortunate and it's a true honour to have uh, two phenomenally inspiring uh, female leaders joining us today for a discussion about COVID, about gender, and about what we need to do in Canada to see more women lead in politics but in all sectors. And so I have a few questions to kick off this conversation but we will try to make it feel as conversational as possible and to you who are tuning in there will be an opportunity to be a part of this discussion. So if you've got a question or a comment feel free to put it into the chat. Uh, I would also encourage you if you would like to uh, just say hello in the chat and say uh, where you're calling in from today we would we would love to hear from you. So this is aimed to feel like a discussion with two amazing female leaders and uh, and we're, we're thrilled that you're a part of it. So um, my final note before we get uh, started with the conversation is I would also encourage you to be active on social media if there's something said today that you find Uh, particularly insightful and you believe that Canadians need to hear it, uh, please tag it. We are using the hashtags uh, choose to challenge and feminist recovery, which is the international and Canadian theme for this year. So feel free to, uh, to share this discussion beyond our conversation today using the social media platforms you're connected to. Okay, so without any further ado, uh, Premier Cochrane, Premier Wynne, thank you so much to both of you for being here, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit from each of you, just just one at a time, just so that we can, uh, you know, we we know we know you, we follow you, we admire you, but we'd love to hear a little bit about you in your own words. So, Premier Cochrane, uh, let's start with you. Um, Many Canadians got to know our female First Ministers through the No Second Chances Project. But, of course, you were elected once that podcast had concluded. So for those who may not be as familiar with your story, I wonder if you can tell us just a little bit about you. Uh, Who are you and what led you uh, towards pursuing a path of politics? Um, Thank you,
2: Kate. I really uh, I'll start by saying I really think that the uh, the uh, quote for international women's Day is appropriate in my story it's uh, choose the challenge um, so there's always been a perception that there's a certain type of person that can get into politics, and I thought that was only gender based but it's so of course people with money are always the ones that should be people that have uh, the opportunities well educated etc should be in politics and uh, women tend to not be in that formula, but I, choose, I chose the challenge. And I, I ask everyone to choose the challenge. My story is a little bit different than the norm, I think. Um, I was a high school dropout in grade nine, come from a family, very, uh, a lot of addictions, a lot of family violence. Um, ended up uh, being on my own as a street kid, uh, being homeless for a few years, and becoming a single parent with two children, so after the birth of my second child, I decided that I, I needed a change for my children. Um, I was bartending at the time, and uh, and I realized I couldn't do that field. I couldn't work at night and uh, expect someone to take care of my children and then get them up in the days and get them to school, etc. So I went back to university. I went to school and got a degree, ironically, in social work. Um, it made sense. I came from a, a hard life, and I bartended for many years, so it seemed easy that I could move that into something that uh, that I knew. So I came out with a degree in social work, and I chose to, even though in the Northwest Territories there's very few people that are Indigenous and from the territories that are um, educated, I chose to work in the nonprofit world because I felt they needed my help more. And I worked for 20 years with uh, low-income families and homeless women, and I kept complaining that the government wasn't doing anything. They weren't listening. Nothing was changing. We had been living off 30,000 core funding for over 30 years, and it wasn't okay. So my partner told me uh, one day, he said, I'm getting tired of hearing you complain all the time. You're smart enough. You're wise enough. Run for politics. And I never took him serious because my life never led. I wasn't one of those uh, people that should be in politics. Um, so at around the same time we had this uh the status of women in the northwest territories came up with a campaign school for women in leadership so i decided i'd take the course i took it and i and it it gave me a huge amount of tools it gave me the the knowledge to be able to know what i needed to run it gave me uh also the self-esteem that told me that Everyone needs to be at the table. So it's not about... And even as a woman, since I've been elected, I've heard I cannot lead. Um, the economy is going to go to hell. Excuse my language. Um, I've even heard from other women that I'm not the right woman to be in leadership. But I chose a challenge, and I challenge everyone out there. Every single woman, every single person has a right to run for politics. We all have diverse voices. We all have diverse lives and only by having diversity at the well, table. Thank you for sharing. You have such an inspiring story. And I think all
1: Canadians should so be thankful a to your partner for oh, thank you. Uh, thank uh, prompting you. you to run and also for you being willing to choose to challenge. So thanks for sharing that. Premier Wynne. So you have been uh, the person who's broken through (laughs) uh, several uh, glass ceilings. You hold many important firsts. You've recently announced uh, your decision to, after making a tremendous contribution to public life, uh, that you will be retiring after this term. So I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit for us about what things you are most proud of from those many, many accomplishments. Uh, When you look back in your time in politics and your current time in politics, uh, what makes you most proud?
3: Thanks, Kate. And thanks for all the work
4: you've done to amplify the lives of women who have been in leadership positions politically across this country. Um, and Carolyn, uh, Premier Cochrane, it's just such a pleasure to meet you on screen. And uh, I wish I wish we were all in a room together so we could have this conversation. Um, so, Kate, you can imagine that since you. Um, since we lost the election and then since I've announced that I'm not um, going to run again, I've been asked that question a lot. And um, the question of, you know, what am I most proud of? And usually the way I answer and I'll just I'll just go over some of the things that I usually say, uh, but then I want to come back because. I made some notes, and it's interesting what you said, Carolyn, um, really dovetails with what I, what I really believe is important about my having been in office. So I am incredibly proud of having been part of a government that rebuilt our education system in Ontario. I was Minister of Education when we began to implement full-day kindergarten. Um, I changed the curriculum, the Indigenous uh, curriculum, including um, education on residential schools. We put in place equity legislation. And I'm proud of ways that we move the bar, you know on things like we put in place a cap and trade system, so we moved the environmental conversation in the country um, by doing that, working with Quebec and with British Columbia, we improved the Canada pension plan, working with the federal government and all of the premiers at the table. We put in place a basic income pilot um, and I you know we increased the minimum wage. and the reason I say I'm proud of the the moving the bar is that I believe that once. Once you do things like that, once you demonstrate that, yep, you can raise the minimum wage and it actually things get better, not worse. Yep, you can put a basic income pilot in place and you can start to see some of the evidence come out. Even when a government, the next government cancels those things, you have as a government, you have you've made it clear a little bit of what's possible. And I think that is what moves the bar and helps people think about What could be? It's interesting to me that now during COVID, things like paid sick days, which we had put in place and then were repealed by this government, are now the hottest item in terms of discussion because it's clear that paid sick days are needed. And nobody can say, well, it's impossible because, in fact, we put paid sick days in place. Employers stepped up they paid for those sick days. And so we know it's possible. So I'm proud of those things. But just to go to what Carolyn said, what I'm really proud of is that I took a set of beliefs as a mom, as a woman, as a lesbian. um, And I had I had uh, energy for public service. I had a concern about publicly funded education. And I translated that into political action. And I wasn't cowed by the negative messages. Carolyn and I have different backgrounds. We have different uh, stories. But there were lots of negative messages to me about running for office where I ran. You know, I am a lesbian. You should run somewhere else. There were lots of negative messages about running for leader. You know, a lesbian can never be the premier of Ontario. You can't get elected. But I persevered despite those biases, and those biases were within the Liberal Party, they were in my community, and they were in the broader society. So at the end of the day, I think that really is what will stick with me as, you know, we talk about legacy. That's what people ask me about. They ask very inspiring. me about perseverance and Thank you very the much for everything that you've done but also continuing to share proud that uh, these insights
1: with that. us. That's, that's great. Okay, so let's talk a bit about COVID. So this week will mark the one year, 365 days, since the WHO declared COVID a pandemic. It has been a very difficult year for everyone, but uh, we know that's particularly true for women and it's particularly true for women who also experience other barriers, women living in poverty, racialized women, women with disabilities. Uh, the numbers are deeply concerning and there's lots of evidence to suggest that the gender gap is getting larger uh, during this experience and we can expect that to continue. So. Uh, You both lead in different jurisdictions. Tell us a little bit about what you are seeing about how COVID is impacting women. And related to that, what are the things that policymakers should be most focused on right now? And Premier Cochran, let's start with you. Um,
3: Thank
2: you. I think uh, it feels like more like 10 years at the that COVID's been with us in honesty. I think we're all experiencing not COVID fatigue, COVID exhaustion. I think most of us are done with it, but uh, it's still here. So we're still dealing with it. Um, when COVID hit, um, everybody was scrambling. There was no formula. Nobody had uh, experienced a pandemic. Very few people in their lives. We do have a few elders that uh, remember flu bugs that came through, but nothing to this extent. So... Um, in the Northwest Territories, we shut down everything. We don't have the healthcare infrastructure to be able to care for people if they became very sick. So we took the uh, the decision to be very um, conservative, actually, and make sure that uh, we shut down our borders, we closed down our our services, the businesses, etc. We went right into full lockdown, um, and then we slowly opened up. Within a couple of months, we realized, okay, we know a little bit what we're dealing with. And we started to open up. But the service sectors were actually uh, restaurants, bars, et cetera, were ones that uh, didn't open up right away. And those tend to be dominated by women and low-income people. So they were some of the people that were hit hardest with our closures. And and even to this day, we have, uh, they're open, but there's only a certain amount of people allowed in into those establishments. And then I noticed that as people became, people were losing jobs or people became ill or, or worried um, that women were the caregivers, so they were actually expected to stay home. If they lost their jobs, they were the ones doing the most of the volunteer, taking care of the families, feeding. And those that were allowed to work, were, most of us were working from home. And uh, again, I didn't uh, hear as many of my male colleagues complaining about children in the background. Uh, even on the call this morning, I heard uh, you know the baby. Hopefully, he's got toys. He's so going to be okay. Going to be quiet. I don't hear those conversations when I'm, I'm listening to men on on Zoom or you know the, the communication uh, tools that we're using now. So women were hit very hard with having to work from home, uh, which was a luxury for some, but also another chore because you didn't get a break. For often, women, when you wake up in the morning, you're scrambling to get yourself ready, get children ready, get breakfast fed, get schoolwork, make sure it's done, get those children off to school, get to work, do your work and then go home and, and do the, the housekeeping and the cooking, et cetera. But this all became one for women now, all things in one. So not only were women uh, having to do those chores, but they were also doing them during the day. Uh, many of my women colleagues, actually, when we're in Zoom meetings, will have children on the side of them and coming up and crawling on their laps, which I love to see, in fairness. But I also know it's a chore. Uh, when we didn't have the daycares, were were closed it was women that were impacted at first uh, because people just expected that if there's no daycare providers, that women are going to stay home and take care of their children. So I would say that the impact on women has been horrific through COVID. And, uh, but I, don't wanna, I also want to say that the impact on low-income people on families was was also a struggle. So. And women tend to be lower income in general. Um, so mm-hmm. a number of factors yeah. that, that uh, impacted them. So yeah, it was, it's been a tough year for for COVID and for women.
3: Yeah, so um, ditto to
4: what uh, Premier Cochrane said. You know, in my own riding and uh, across the province, we've seen um, women in the service and the caring sectors, the frontline most at risk. Um, but they're also the people who are responsible for the caregiving and homemaking in their own homes, and that is a huge, huge burden and it's the reason that um, so many thousands of women have left the workforce i mean apart from the loss of jobs but um the 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 disproportionate impact on women has included women leaving jobs and being at risk of not coming back into the workforce and that's that's one of the things that i think uh, policymakers have to focus on now is how do we actually help women transition, make the transition back into the workforce? What are the supports that probably should have been there to start out with, but certainly are needed now in order to get women back? Um, One of the the things that has really um, bothered me, irritated me, irked me, is that roles that have always been, been essential, they've always been essential, whether it's grocery store clerks or childcare, or um, elder care, those have been essential jobs forever. And they're now being recognized as essential because COVID has shone a light on how things fall apart if you don't have people to look after um, the people you love or your little ones. Um, but it's really easy to imagine that once the, the peak of the crisis is, past and we're kind of on the tail end that that recognition of essential will be gone that it will fade and we will you know we could potentially go back to where we were which it which is where we've been forever in that those are not the value roles those are the underpaid jobs and positions in society that are held by women so i think policy fake policymakers should be focused on how to mitigate the impact of those disproportionate effects on women that means making childcare investments targeted training programs um, wage enhancements in uh, in health roles uh, long-term care um, home care the reinstatement and expansion of sick days in Ontario we had sick days they were withdrawn as I said um, and in general I think governments need to recognize that investment will be necessary at least in the short to midterm to help people make it out of uh, COVID. There's going to be a lot of pressure to shift the focus to deficit and debt reduction but you know if we do that too quickly We are going to further damage the um, ability of women to take part in their communities um, in the, in the next couple of years. So that's, I think, what. Um, policymakers really need to be aware of and as I said earlier I think it's great that the Prime Minister has set up an advisory a task force on um, helping women through the so if I could just ask
1: a follow-up to both of you and this might be um, like a totally unfair question you don't have crystal balls uh, but do you feel like this is a moment where we will see some of these things change because it's been so you know when when 12 times as many mothers and fathers are leaving the workforce of young kids, when 10 times as many women have had to leave their jobs over the last year. Um, you both talked about family responsibilities. You know, there's been so much celebration of essential work. Uh, do you think this is a moment that's going to spark uh, change and progress? Or are you feeling like this is maybe just setting us back and we just will have further to go from this point?
3: Well, I think, you know, I think the
4: danger just to, you know, to build on what I said before, um, I think the danger is that leaders who try to do that are going to have loud voices yelling at them about no more money, you know, that you can't invest any more money. And that's what I'm worried about. So, you know, people in Premier Cochran's position are going to have financial advisors and, you know, members of their their own caucus, their own governments who are going to be saying, whoa, 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 we've spent way too much money, we've got to slow down, you know, future generations, etc. As though future generations don't need the supports of their families, their mothers, and those social services that are going to get them off to a good start. So so I, I hope it's a moment where, where we will do the right thing, Kate. But unfortunately, I'm old enough that, you know, these some of these moments have come before, and we haven't taken advantage of them. Maybe
2: maybe this is different. I hope it is. I think if I add on to that, um, you can either look at it glass half empty or glass half full. So glass half empty means, uh, yeah, we may make steps backwards. Again, I do agree um, that uh, people are going to start talking about budgets. They're going to start talking about uh, hitting their their limits. Um, they're going to talk, start talking about uh, build, rebuilding the economy again. However, at the same time, I think it has brought a light onto the um, the role of women and the importance of women. Uh, research right across the world is saying, and, and it's not just myself that's seeing that, it's saying that women leaders, um, women politicians, women CPHOs, women uh, in the research field, in the, the helping field, nurses, doctors, et cetera, are dealing with COVID-19 differently. This, the countries that have more women leaders are actually more successful in dealing with COVID. It's also brought, uh, like I said, to the forefront the necessity of women, the the lack of childcare, the lack of opportunities for women. So I'm also very hopeful that uh, women across the the world, not only Canada but across the world, will see that this is a time for change and that we either step up to the plate now or we let things slide backwards. So, I am very hopeful that more and more women, based on what has happened, will put their names forward and will take leadership jobs as we move forward. It's very lonely being the only woman at the table in the federation
4: and that is that is so important because if if there you know every table had more women at it, there would be even more hope that that you know these things that we're talking about would be addressed and I think the other thing is. The way Premier Cochran talks about the investments and the economy is a shift from the way traditionally we've thought about the economy. The economy includes the ability to feed our kids, to look after our kids, to look after our elders. It's not just a balance sheet. You know, it actually includes mm-hmm. the way we live so uh, our lives. So let's carry
1: on that same to topic about women in our most senior political leadership that, right. roles. Uh, Premier Cochran, you you mentioned uh, that there has been a lot of attention about women leaders over the last year. There are really interesting research studies coming out on this that even after controlling for population size or income or capacity of the healthcare system, there is a difference between countries where there are lots of women in leadership roles and those that aren't in terms of how they've fared during COVID, meaning more cases, uh, more deaths in countries where fewer women are in leadership roles. So this is obviously an emerging leadership or an emerging uh, research area. We're all living through this right now, but what do you think explains those differences? So why does it matter? I think we we sort of assume that this is that you know, people generally understand this, but why does it matter Uh, During times of crisis that we have women in senior leadership roles and uh, Premier Cochrane, maybe we'll start with you
2: Okay, I'd like to uh, start by saying um, So this is my second uh, assembly I've been in it's five and a half years now since I was first elected and became a minister first and now the premier Um, In the last assembly, there was only two of us. We we have a small assembly. There's only 19 of us, in fairness, but only two of us were women. One is a minister, myself, in that assembly, and the other was a regular member. Um, And I heard way too often that the best social program is a job by men all the time. The best social program is a job. Well, I have to say, and I, I tried to explain that, and nobody ever heard me very well, was that my father worked. Um, My family worked. We had an income, but that didn't stop the uh, the addictions and that didn't stop the family violence and that didn't stop all the horrific things that happened in my life and for my siblings' life. So yes, the job is part of the answer, but it's not the only answer. So I watched across the the country when uh, COVID first hit and it was hard for premiers across the country. People were saying, what do we do? Well, there was no game book. So we all had to start from scratch. And uh, I don't want to be negative, but I did notice that uh, jurisdictions that that uh, said the economy is the most important factor and left their borders up were hit hard with COVID. People by thousands were get, getting the impact and people were dying, uh, horrible, horrible times for them. We took the, the stance that our health is most important And so we locked down tight and we locked down our our businesses and our borders, et cetera, to make everyone self-isolate. No one can come into the territories without self-isolating. And then we tried to open our economy up after we had locked down, which gave us a little bit of power, gave us a template to to work from. It also allowed when when the second wave hit in, in December, we didn't have to go backwards. Because we had already gone through and we'd already opened up, we had limits on stores, on, on capacity, et cetera. Um, one thing that came with our government as well that I have to say, and I'm quite proud of, the first time in history for this assembly, a year and a half ago, we had uh, equal representation almost. Well, nine out of, out of 19 members are women in our assembly. I would have loved to have 10 or even 10 and a half or nine and a half, but uh, I have to take what I got. So nine out of, out of 19 is wonderful. It's history for us. One of the things that we did too, having, and out of that, out of we only have seven cabinet ministers. Five of the cabinet ministers are women, which is huge for us as well. So one of the first things we did was uh, uh, put a gender plus lens on everything we did. So in every decision that comes to finance or to cabinet, actually have to address how they impact people of diversity, women, um, and other diverse nations within that. So I think that is a huge step that we've done. Um, It hasn't let us down so far. And I think that uh, we'll continue doing that as we move forward. So so like I said, uh, it's been a challenge, but uh, we've been able to think. Uh, The other thing too is we didn't only think about the economy. Um, we're doing an economic and a social recovery plan. So one of the first things we did, I always say, society is judged by how we treat our most marginalized populations. Our most marginalized populations happen to be mostly homeless people, poverty, Indigenous people. So we took people off the streets. We put them into shelters. I, never, I don't want to see those go back. Um, you know, the amount of things we, uh, we expanded our distance education, our v- virtual distance education for students. Um, made it more powerful because we don't have the, the, the same levels of education in all communities. We don't have the access that people have in the South. So the things that we did actually to address the pandemic actually benefited women and children and uh, marginalized populations. So I'm very proud of that, the work that we've done, and I hope to see it go forward. I hope that the next assembly will have just as many, if not more women, and across Canada. It is time for women to step up. We've shown we can do it. We've shown how powerful we can be. And uh, like I said, it's it's lonely up here, and I need more people to come and join the table.
4: You've heard it from Premier Cochrane, you know. Um, that early lockdown—that's what Angela Merkel did too, right? I mean, you know, um, Jacinda Ardern. Um, I think the notion that Women perhaps were not and are not as afraid of telling the truth that this is this is actually, you know, this is worrisome. Um, We've got to do this and and being willing to risk the economy, but not being willing to risk health. And I think that is that is a a fundamental difference. Um, I think that. the fact that women uh, leaders seem to have jurisdictions that are more engaged in systematic testing. And that, you know, that may not, that may not sound like it directly links to not being worried about telling the truth. But the more you test, the more you know, the more evidence you have, and therefore, the more you can base your decisions on that evidence. So um, I think not not wanting to hide the truth, wanting to actually know what's going on leads to more testing. I kept in Ontario, I kept asking that question early on why are we not testing more? Why are we not getting the information about what's actually going on? So I think that um, women led countries and, and jurisdictions have engaged in more of those activities that are based in evidence, that are based in science, and they haven't been afraid to work with their um, to tell that truth to their constituents. I don't know about the empathy piece. I mean, I was looking at some of the literature or some of the articles that have written about this. But I got to think that Jacinda Arden's um, comment about the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy early on, it just demonstrated a humanity and a connection to people's everyday lives that is part of that decision making um, that I think is uh, is part of why people have trusted leadership and it and you know the the success of jurisdictions um, in fighting COVID has a lot to do with people trusting the instructions of their government the um, advice of their government so I think all of those factors play into why women have have um, have been successful. And like Premier Cochran, I really hope in this, um, as, a, as a result of this, that we see the shift, a shift in how we think about leadership, how we think about strong leadership. Because honestly, Kate, you know, we've talked about this, When when people imagine a leader, they imagine a man. So let's mm-hmm. hope that
1: okay, this great. worldwide as pandemic planters, uh, as always can start of to shift. Okay, audience, people's perceptions I have uh, one more question is. for me and then we'll be turning it over. We've got a few questions submitted already, but if there is something on your mind, this is a great opportunity to uh, ask a question and, and receive some insightful responses. So please put those into the chat. Uh, the final question for me before we open the floor up is, so we have had 300, I think it's just over 320 now, but more than 300 people throughout Canada's history have served in the roles that you have. So as first ministers, they've reached our peak political post and only 13 have been women and you are two of them. So there are many people watching this, I suspect, who are maybe thinking about what their own political engagement may look like. There may be women thinking about running. And so I know you're asked this question a lot, but I'm wondering if you could give a piece of advice For uh, particularly women who want to see those numbers change, they know that that's not good enough. They're thinking about stepping up their own engagement. What advice would you have for them? And uh, Premier Wynne, let's start with you.
3: Well, I would say first of all, please do it. Please get involved.
4: Um, We need your voices. We need your strengths. We need and we need your vulnerabilities. You know, we've been talking about vulnerabilities as well. So the very reasons that you might hesitate, that you don't know enough, or you don't have the usual experience that politicians have, or you don't know where the money will coming from, all things that Premier Cochrane noted, those are the very reasons we need you in political life because you're not, you don't fit a mold. You don't have a, um, you're not of that narrow band of people who have, uh, who have been in those over 300, um, positions. Your life experience will inform good decisions and that's why you're needed at the table. Um, and there's really no single prescription for experience that is necessary for political life. You know, we need diversity and And fundraising is a learned skill. So, anybody who tells you you don't, you know, you don't, there's not enough money, please, you can pay some attention to that, but basically ignore it because you will find someone to help you raise money. The money will come. And the fact that you don't necessarily have links to people with deep pockets, that should not be a deterrent. And uh, so, I just want to say that. And finally, um, listen to your gut instincts, you know, your inner resources, you, you'll build a strong team. Um, don't be afraid of losing, uh, okay, but Premier, fundamentally listen to who you are and what you believe in. And
2: that, uh, that will carry you a long way. Um, so I agree. Um, again, back to the slogan is uh, choose a challenge, choose a challenge, uh, societal beliefs that, uh, Men are better leaders and choose to challenge yourself. I find that one of the hardest things for women, actually, when they're thinking about leadership is is looking at our own uh, areas of concern and, and and identifying our own strengths. I don't find that as much with, with men who decide to run for leadership. They look at uh, their strengths. Why would I be a good leader? I'd be a good leader because I'm educated. I worked and I ran a business, et cetera. Women tend to be the opposite. We, when we think of leadership, we tend to think of all of our deficits. Man, I don't think I can be a leader. i got kids at home. I don't have enough money. I didn't get enough education. Challenge those belief systems because that society, society has done that to you. Society is, has built up men to look at their strengths because if, you're, if you don't portray, portray yourself as someone strong, you're not considered a man in society, which is a fallacy as well. And women are supposed to be humble and quiet, barefoot, pregnant in the kitchen. I hate to say that, but uh, I'm a horrible cook. I like to walk barefoot, but I'm a horrible cook. And I'm 60 years old, so my days of pregnancies are done. Um, but I still have a lot to offer, and, and so do so many people. There is no one prescription for who should be a leader. Uh, like I said, I took beatings a lot, even by other women that said she's not the right woman. Make sure you get the right woman if you're going to get a woman. What is the right woman? What does that look like? Nobody's ever laid that out for me, and nobody should lay that out. So I would love to see more women of of all kinds of diversity: women of color, women of of different incomes, women of different backgrounds. Uh, you know, women in business, women in that stay home, all kinds of women. We all have something to bring. And when, until we have equal seats at the table, because women think differently. We don't think di- better. We think differently. And until we're represented equally at the table, then we will always be having these discussions. As uh, Premier Wynn said, um, we'll still be talking about childcare in 20, 30 years from now. We'll still be talking about essential service workers in 20, 30 years from now, unless we have equal representation. So every woman out there that is thinking of a leadership challenge yourself. Choose to challenge yourself. Choose to challenge societal norms. Put your name forward. You can do it.
4: <laughs> and Carolyn,
2: and I love your comment about the right woman.
4: How many times do yeah, we bother true. thinking about who's okay, the right man? Okay, so we are man? getting
1: some, uh, there's some been lots insightful of wrong questions man. in here, and I will uh, read them out, and uh, either of you can contribute. Both of you can contribute. Uh, the first one is about social media, and generally the difficult, and you know, one of the reasons women may not want to step forward is because they are stepping into sometimes a a very negative environment. So the question is, social media platforms have accelerated and weaponized the abuse that women in politics experience. And that abuse is now being targeted at public servants as well. So what would you like to see happen in terms of the regulation of social media platforms and the abuse to policing and addressing online abuse? So what can we do about this online environment that can be particularly difficult for women?
3: Social media is horrible.
2: I'm just going to tell you that. Social media is a great platform. It helps get information out. It, it helps connect families. It's been critical within COVID. People that can't see their families, their loved ones have used that to be able to reach out to those they care for. However, social media has increased the amount of of hate uh, messages that come towards women leaders um, dramatically. So, um, it's, it's frustrating. When I first started uh, as the premier, I, I mean, I had some, some haters out there. We all have haters in life. It's just how life goes. And when you get into politics, it's, I always say half the people will think you're doing a good thing and half the people will hate you. That's not a gender thing. That's just, I think, how it is. However, when social media became the major communications factor through COVID and people lost jobs and people were hurt and scared and angry, it became also a, a weapon that was used and, and some of the most nastiest things that came, that came out, I think, over this last year. Um, people that uh, were really hurting and people that didn't even have real names. Um, when you creeped out their friends list, they didn't even, there was nobody associated with them. The worst thing about social media is it's that the people that support you are not as verbal. It's the people that don't like you that tend to take up the airspace. And that's distressing. So I do think there needs to be some regulations around that the names that have been called, the women leaders out there, the things that I've had to, to look at, the things my family have had to see and be subjected to are not okay. If, we're, if this is the major communication method going forward, and I see it as, um, then we definitely need regulations. We need to stop the allowance of hate messages. We need to stop the allowance of racism messages. We have to stop anything. And I don't believe in burning books, but I do believe in respect. And I, I see that uh, when you can hide behind a fake name and not have a picture associated with you, it's too easy to slam out hate messages. And the public, for some reason, feed off of them. And then it becomes a snowball effect. So if we don't uh, do some regulation uh, federally on, on the use of these social mediums, then you're going to see more and more bullying out there. And I hate to say that, but uh, bullying needs to often to mental health issues, and often can lead to suicide, a tragic ends for people, or really bad choices in life. So I think that it has really highlighted the need to address that and the need to have regulations around how we're dealing with social media, personal opinion.
4: I just want to add i mean i I agree with uh, with Carolyn and um, I know that I saw in the Q and a that this question comes from Syria grell who is uh, who's done a lot of work on this and understands the issue really well um, and i wish I wish I had an easy answer to it. I think there does need to be more regulation. I think um what premier Cochran said about uh, the anonymity is makes it really really challenging um and I think if people were forced to be who they are online, I think it would be different. Um, I think the line between hate speech and just critic and critique has to be very, very clear. Um, so I think there, I think there are things that can be done, and um, federal regulators and you know decision makers across all levels of government actually need to grapple with this. So that's one aspect of it, Kate. But I think there's a, I think there's a, another piece to this, which is we really have to step up our game in terms of literacy for kids, you know, media literacy and an understanding of what these social media platforms are, um, because we're never going to be able to fix them completely, just as we can't, you know, we can't fix human nature. There are going to be people who are hateful. The trouble is that social media amplifies that. So, <clears throat> so I think that the, The work that we do in our schools, um, the the tools that parents have to help kids to understand what is and what isn't um, okay have to be increased. And it was interesting to me when we were going through the whole debate about sex education in Ontario, um, one of the, the key points for me was that parents need support of institutions to help their kids deal with the horrible stuff that they see online. So I think that there's a huge education component that has to be in place as we get the regulation um, in place, but also recognizing that We're never going to be able to regulate to the point where there won't be dangerous, horrible stuff. Thank you. That's all.
1: Okay. The next question uh, is about the kind of narrative structure around the policy issues that both of you identified. So we've talked about childcare. We've talked about uh, how we support essential work. Um, Are we framing these things in the wrong way? So I'll I'll read the exact uh, language here. Do you think we need to do a better job articulating the economic imperative behind things like, paid sick days, childcare, and women in the workforce? And are we failing to motivate because the narrative is focused on the wrong things? Sometimes we position these as being moral reasons rather than financial reasons. So what's your sense? Have we have we missed the boat on how we frame some of these issues? And has it prevented us from being able to move forward fast enough? Premier Cochran, let's start with you.
3: Um,
2: absolutely, we've missed the boat on it. Um, we always thought, like I, I said earlier, uh, too often i had heard the best social program is a job. Um, however, it, uh, COVID-19 really brought the forefront about uh, if you're going to have a job, there's basic uh, things that we need in place, for example, childcare. care. Um, very few people as parents can actually work if they don't have any childcare. care. Then somebody has to stay home and take care of that, the children. Hopefully it'll be more men than women, but uh, the reality is it's more women. Um, and the like uh, Premier Wynette had said that you know having looking at essential services in our healthcare in our service sector, etc. Those are essential workers. Those are are women dominated fields. However, if you look at them, they're usually undervalued and underpaid. And so we need to look at that as well. Uh, the more women that come in, we can't. Uh, there's more jobs in Canada than there are people. Um, so we need women working and women don't want all, all women don't want to stay home, be pregnant, barefoot in, in the kitchen. Like I said, I'm a horrible cook. Um, so we have a, we have assets to bring to the workforce. We think differently. We have a different viewpoint. Uh, we have a lot to offer. And so if we only frame it as, uh, we need to take care of the economic recovery and go back to normal, like, uh, like Premier Wynne had, had stated and, and a little bit worried that all these good things that we brought forward are going to disappear, then we have missed the vote. So we now need to think we've learned, uh, it's been put bare in our face, the the importance of women, the importance of, of caregiving, uh, both for children, for elders, for those we love. And so if we really have seen that over the last year, wouldn't it be a sin to go backwards and, and uh demote those positions and uh say it's okay to undervalue them and underpay for them? They need to be recognized. COVID brought to the forefront and we need to address them properly by paying them right okay. right and also and by in. making sure that services are there so all people can
3: work, not just men. Yeah,
4: so I I think um in political terms, I think that it's true that we probably uh, have missed the boat in some ways in terms of framing these issues in a traditionally economic context. I think that is probably true. Um, and maybe COVID will, I hope, COVID will give us the opportunity to reframe them a bit. But I think we have to, let's just consider what the um Underlying assumption of that whole discussion is the underlying assumption is that it is actually more important to frame childcare as an economic good than it is to frame it as a human good. So it's actually more important that we increase productivity in the economy than it is that children get a good start so that they can be fully functioning um, human beings and. I get, I get that the economic argument is going to be privileged over the human argument. I get that, but I don't buy it. You know, I don't, in my heart, I don't believe that publicly funded education is just about making people able to make more money. It is about a society that is, um, is more equitable. It's about people being able to take part in their communities. It's about people being able to be healthier. And we may frame those as moral goods, but that's where the division between moral and, and economic is. It's a false, it's a false separation. They are connected to one another, and we've got to reconnect them in our in our minds. So yeah, let's make the economic arguments, but let's not forget that. The, the moral, the social, the emotional, psychological arguments are all part of that, okay, that economic uh,
1: So uh, our well, next question is about I how do we get more women sense, involved in all parts of the political yeah. process? So we tend to focus a lot on getting women to run, which of course is important. But uh, this person identifies it in your roles and throughout your journeys in politics. You've seen women organize and inspire programs and inspire others to get involved. So to people who are watching, what can each of us do to make sure that more women take part in the political process? What are specific things we can do to get more women engaged in politics in some way? Uh, Premier Wynne, let's start with you. Well, I
3: think we can encourage women uh, to to be involved in leadership roles
4: in the things that they're interested in. You know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be getting your name on a ballot. It doesn't even have to be a political party. I always say to the young kids when um, when I'm talking to groups of kids that find the thing you're interested in. You know, and if you find the thing that you're interested in and you and you try to make change in that area, whether it's a club at school or whether it's an organization in the community, if you develop those skills and you hear your voice in uh, in an environment where you're either taking a leadership role or you're part of a, a collective action. That is the kind of preparation that you need for being involved in politics. And then later, you, you know, you may decide that you want to be involved working in a politician's office or being part of writing associations or campaign teams. Like there are all those, those mechanisms for being involved in formal politics. But honestly, it starts with caring about things. It starts with wanting to see change. And then that becomes the motivation for being involved in uh, formal politics. I mean, politics is everywhere. Politics is in families because (laughs) politics is (laughs) about who wields Uh, the power and who makes the decisions. So we're all
2: in it, whether we like it or not. Um, Thank you. I think it, uh, it starts from when we're young. Um, again, I'm, like I said, I'm six years old. So I remember when I was young, the times are changing a little bit, but not a lot. Um, when I was young, uh, women got Barbie dolls and boys got skates or hockey pucks. And, um, I am seeing that change in a bit, but not a lot. I'm still noticing a lot of, uh, girl children are getting Barbie dolls and a lot of boy children are still getting hockey pucks. Um, why can't women have hockey pucks and why can't boys play with toys with, with dolls. Um, they're gonna be parents one day, a lot of them, so they should learn soon. I also think that so I think that starting young has to be considered. I also think that the school systems actually need to change. Um there is a reason, I'm not even sure what it is, but people get graded A, B, C, D and F in school. How does it feel to get an F? It means you failed. You're a failure in life. That needs to change. We need to focus on the strengths of people. Uh, of all genders within within our youth, because if we focus on on the grade system, it tells people that there's winners and there's losers in life, and I don't believe that's true. I believe each person has strengths that we have and areas that we need to work on, all of us. So I, I, I would love to see that change. Probably not in my lifetime, but uh, eventually that uh, we will focus on the strengths that people have. I think there needs to be more leadership training in schools so that uh, all all youth can actually learn what it is to be a leader, learn what the skills are and learn and learn that. It also, when you learn to be a leader, you also learn other things. You learn about self-esteem building. You learn about not bullying people. You learn about listening to other voices if you're doing it properly. (laughs) So hopefully that'll take a focus as well. But the bigger thing is supporting each other. It's hard enough when you have your own self-doubts if you're going to run for leadership. It's hard enough when you have a whole bunch of men out there saying, um, you know, don't do it because it's a, it's a man's world. But it's really tough when you have other women fighting you as well and saying that women shouldn't do it. You know, you, you're not, you're going to become aggressive. You're going to become horrible. You're going to be this and that. So we need to support each other. I really believe in the campaign schools. I think that I wish that federally we'd have more campaign schools for women across the nation. It made a difference for myself. Out of the the majority of the women that actually got elected into our legislation, our legislative assembly this term actually took part in the, the campaign schools. The campaign schools, like you said, gave us the tools. It told you what you need to do, what literature you need, what how what steps, how you get out there. But it also taught us about fundraising, which is something that women are not usually good at. Um, and I hate to say that societal, but it is societal. Um, often seen when when you ask uh people for money especially if you ask a a man for money as a woman, there's often implications that come with asking for that money. And that needs to stop. We know it's wrong, but it's out there. So help each other. Promote women that are running for leadership in any kind of leadership, not just politics, but anything that they may be looking at. Promote them, walk with them, knock on the doors with them, and and find out what you can offer. Because every person, you might not want to be a, a politician, But you have lots to offer. So if you can help somebody that is campaigning either with fundraising, editing their papers, writing their papers, uh, developing uh, promotional things for them, um, you know, all kinds of things, just spreading the word. As long as women keep taking down women, we will have a struggle to get there. We need to support each other to be able to climb the ladder, to be able to sit at the Mm -hmm. table Mm -hmm. because it's a high table.
1: Thank you. Um, Okay, so we're down to about uh, 15 minutes left. But I I do want to flag, someone uh, asked a question about long-term care, which has obviously been uh, a very important part of this whole experience over the past year. Uh, The number of deaths have been Totally unacceptable, and so the the person asks about um, you know this is a chance to hear from two leaders in two different jurisdictions, but I, I think the heart of the question is uh, what do we do about this? Is this something that we need federal standards to solve, or is there something else that is needed? And um, Premier Wen, I wonder if we can start with you. I know you've done some writing and uh, some really insightful comments about the kind of change that's needed. So, what do we need to do about addressing the long term care crisis that has really captivated the attention of the country over the last year?
3: So, Kate, I think there are some I think
4: there are some immediate things that should have been done and still need to be done. Um, and those have to do with um, with staffing in uh, in long term care homes and in retirement homes and in home care, quite frankly, because we're talking about that continuum. Um, so increased staffing um, more um more support for for example the scheduling in uh in those jobs because they're very precarious in terms of people's ability to piece together uh, a job and um and you know the sick days discussion has come out of um the the Horrible conditions that we've seen workers, particularly in long-term care homes, have to deal with. So the need for sick days for all of the, the workers in uh, in our long-term care homes. So I think there are some immediate things. There was uh, a promise of increased funding for wages, and I think that is something that uh, that needs to be permanent. You know, these are these are jobs that we have said earlier in this conversation are essential. And yet, they are among the lowest-paid jobs in the country. And um, you know, when I raised the minimum wage in Ontario, part of the thinking there was that as you raise the minimum wage, then other wages raise along, rise along with that. So, um, so I think all of those are things that need to be need to be done. Um, but I think there is a broader. Issue and this is the longer conversation about what is our vision for how we want to age, how we care for those who are aging and just building more long-term care homes is not the answer. Most people don't want to be in a long-term care home, most people want to be cared for in a different context they don't want to be institutionalized and so how do we make sure that home care is what it should be and how do we look for how do we look for new models that may not exist yet in canada or they may in some jurisdictions how do we facilitate intergenerational living instead of putting up barriers to intergenerational living how do we Remove those barriers, and how do we take health care and support to where seniors are, so you know there 's something called a naturally occurring retirement community, and how do we How do we put that on the continuum of care? Um, my fear around the long term care crisis that has been exposed by covid is that a lot of the issues have been there for years, and I take responsibility as as a previous premier. But I also know that um, a simple or simplistic solution of just building more of the same is not the answer. And I know the debate has come down to whether private or public. I think that, that's one part of the conversation, but that's not the whole answer. The answer, is, the answer is way more complex. And we we probably need we probably need some kind of commission to look at this nationally and figure out. What the models could okay, be you. and how they could be uh, federal and the what do you see as being the greatest? Needs right now in long what term kinds term. of standards
3: should be in place? Well, I think there's a couple of things I agree with,
2: uh, Premier Wynne, in that uh, we do need to recognize the workers, we need to uh, make sure that they're paid appropriately. We also need to make sure that uh, that there are standards within long-term care facilities so that people's, uh, not only their health needs are met, but their their social needs, their the interaction, the, the, the life needs are met as well. Um, one thing that uh, kind of touched on that I agree with is that, um, so we didn't have the outbreaks in long-term cares that we've seen in other jurisdictions. We don't have the numbers of long-term care so our population is small, um, but what we, did see is that uh, we were um, almost warehousing people when they got to be a certain age and they needed extra help, we were just sticking them in long-term care facilities, not realizing that, uh, like Premier Wynn said, a lot of people don't want to go into those facilities and not everyone needed to be. So instead of just looking at long-term care, I think the question, if we focus just on that, then we might get stuck in the same situation that we're in now. I think we need to talk about aging in place which might mean long-term care, but it might also mean um, having uh, a a unit in your home or be able to provide uh, services to people a little bit differently than actually just sticking them into a a facility. The other thing that, um, uh, a good thing that came out of it is that uh, COVID actually, because people had to self-isolate and uh, weren't allowed, people really started to focus on the importance of family, um, huge in the Northwest Territories, we've seen it. People reaching out. I never phoned. My mother lives in BC, And I phoned my mother more in this last year than I phoned probably in 40 years of my life uh, because of COVID. So it really taught people the importance of family. And in the Northwest Territories, um, not everyone. People make the mistake and they call uh, every senior an elder. But that's not true. An elder has a certain uh, wisdom that comes with that. It's it's, uh, earned title. But what it did teach us is that our seniors are knowledge keepers and our elders. So if we don't preserve them and take care of them and value them, then if you don't learn from history, you'll make the same mistakes. There's lots of quotes around that. So if we, if we don't take care of our seniors then and our elders, then we are at risk of losing our knowledge. And that's a, a huge uh, liability if we go there. But the other thing I want to bring up is that we talk about the long-term care, and I've heard that argument over and over. Um, what are we going to do about it? It is one sector of our vulnerable population. But why aren't we talking about homelessness? Are there not more people that were actually had to living on the streets than there are in long-term care? So, I guess my worry is that when we start to pick and choose which are deserving and which are not, are seniors more valuable than the people sleeping on the streets? So I would like to see not only long-term care uh, standards come across, but also homelessness standards come across and housing for people, Maslow's hierarchy, food, clothing and shelter. If you don't address those needs to start with, then people cannot actualize what, what their potential is. So let's not forget again. Societies judged by how we treat our most marginalized people. Elders are one of them. Seniors are one of okay, them. The um, okay, the next question is, a uh, this is
1: an interesting question. So you've probably been asked a thousand times about the best piece of advice that you've been given, and this is the opposite question. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given about politics? <laughs> I think actually both of you in your stories at the beginning shared about uh you know, there's lots of discouragement along the way, but have you ever received a piece of advice that was just terrible?
3: Well, I think the worst the worst and most ridiculous moment for me
4: when I was um, deciding to first run to be an MPP was um, someone who told me literally that I should be moving to a different part of the city. Riverdale, um, Premier Cochrane. it's a, it's a downtown, I live in the north end, and my riding is in the north end of the old city of Toronto. And this advice was that Jane and I, so my partner and I and our kids should move to Riverdale, I guess, because there are more lesbians there. I don't know. But it was, it was just ridiculous. My kids, I, you know, I said to this person, my kids are in school, like, I'm going to pull all my kids up and move. Anyway, I think that was the worst piece of advice, Any that, terrible that, advice I, that you received. Uh, that I ever
1: heard.
3: And needless to say, I ignored it out of hand. So when I was first
2: elected uh, five and a half years ago and, and became a minister, um, the, like the next day, um, without even knowing what, what a minister was, I didn't even know who previous premiers were. Um, Premier Joe Hanley lives in my riding, and I knocked on his door when I was campaigning. I didn't expect to get elected. I was bringing up homelessness to the forefront was what I campaigned on, um, not expecting to get elected. So I had no idea of who our premiers were, who ministers were, what their jobs were. I didn't know anything. Um, And then I got elected, and then I became a minister. And I went, man, what's my job description? (laughs) You don't have a job description. Basically, they, they told me you can do whatever you want. And then all I got for six months was you can't do that, but you can't do that. So uh, <laughs> you can't do anything you want when you get elected. The worst advice I got though was, uh, and I took took it seriously when I first uh, became a minister. One of the my male colleagues came in and and told me that uh, that departments were hard, and they were going to do everything they could to not listen. That's true. Departments are hard. Corporate culture is hard to change, um, and that the way I had to deal with it was to be aggressive and raise my voice. And if I don't yell at them and if I don't uh, be firm with them, then I won't, they won't change. So I took heed of it and um, I made the mistake actually of doing that. And so um, I'm a social worker. I'm a mom, I'm a grandmother. It's not my nature to, when I was young, yeah, I yelled and screamed. But as I got older, I realized that's not who I wanted to be. Um, So I fought for many years to change that dynamic myself and being that angry woman actually being a, a kinder woman so I got into this position and I was told you have to go right back to being that angry woman if you want them to listen and I did I took my management team and I was yelling and screaming and pulling my hair out and saying do you want your job or not but it ate me internally and and over time I realized that all it did was make them afraid of me and it never moved them in fact they they just hid things from me so the 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 advice was be like a man. Be assertive, be yelling, be loud if you want to be respected. But that was a fallacy. The advice that I would give is be yourself. If you feel that your management style, because you will be a manager if you are a politician, if your management style is to yell and scream and pull your hair out, then go for it. Um, You might not have no much hair left by the time you're finished. But if your style is to be more compassionate, To actually listen to people, treat people like a team, look for all of the advice from around the table and then pick the best uh, idea, which I tend to focus on, then do that as well. Be yourself as a leader. Don't listen to anybody tell you how you have to be a leader. Don't break the law. (laughs) (laughs) That is great advice.
1: (laughs) You turned a question about bad advice into some very good advice. So thank you very much. Uh, so we're into our our last few minutes here, but I I would uh, I'd love it for the final word um, to have people who are tuned in today and women across Canada just generally be able to just hear a message from each of you about um, International Women's Day. As as we said, this has been a really tough year for women. We've seen women trying to hold it all together, kids at home. Uh, working from home, managing all kinds of crises. Um, just as a final word, is there any message that you would like to give to Canadian women today as we're celebrating International Women's Day, appreciating it's been a tough year? What would you say to women who are trying to feel celebratory about this day that is supposed to be a recognition of us? And uh, Premier Wendy we'll start with you.
4: Well, what comes to mind is just, um, you are awesome. You are awesome people with awesome stories. And um, I wish that every woman in this country could feel that because there are so many messages that, um, that seem to negate that. But you know, no matter what you are doing, no matter where you are, what your work is, um, you are doing your very best to look after your kids, to look after your parents to um to make a life for yourself and um that is that is wonderful and i I think the more stories that we can hear um from each other, the better off we're going to be so i guess I guess the last thing I would say is just if you can. If you can find a child within the next little while and just talk to them about your story and listen to them, um, that exchange is so important. That's how, we, that's how we teach people, you know, that's how we teach each other and make our community stronger. So to Canadian women on IWD, it's been a tough year,
2: but you are awesome.
1: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And Premier Cochrane, final word to you. Um, thank you.
2: And, and I do agree. Women throughout are awesome and, and women throughout need to be recognized for their strengths. Whatever you choose to do in life, um, if it's what is in your heart and your passion is there, then that's where you're meant to be. But I have a goal. I'm going to be honest. I want more women in, in leadership. I want more premiums. The so I'm going to put a plug in for that as well. So I'm going to tell women, choose to challenge. You can do it. You can do it. Uh, Don't let that self-esteem, all those negative feedbacks take a hold of you. You have the skills to do it. You have the knowledge. You have a lot to offer. You deserve to be here. And we need you at the table. So that is my plug for today is that uh, choose to challenge society and choose to challenge yourself. You deserve to be here. Thank you. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, to the two of you, uh, thank you so much for your inspiring words today. You are both awesome as well <laughs> and- uh, we are very lucky as Canadians that both of you are willing to choose to challenge uh, throughout your con- your careers, but also that you're continuing to do that. So thank you for making the time to be here. And uh, to each and every person who is watching, uh, thank you for making Canada 2020 a part of your International Women's Day. I hope next year it feels much more natural to be celebratory. I hope this is a year of progress, but uh, for today just to echo these words, uh, women are amazing. Women have shown their resilience and their strength this year. And I hope today uh, each of us can celebrate that. So thank you very much for tuning in and uh, we'll see you next time.
4: Bye everybody. Thank you. Thank, thank you everyone. You. And good luck, Premier Cochrane. I can't wait to meet you in person. Yeah, you know, <laughs> absolutely. Look forward to it.